Blog Talk Radio. and beyond blog talk radio this is your host bernice alexander bennett and joining me today is dr joy Kennard for a discussion about preserving vulnerable african-american sites of power prestige and significance Dr. Joy Kenor is a historian who has worked in African-American history and historic preservation for over 20 years and whose family has been involved for over 70 years. She is the superintendent of the Tuskegee Institute National Historic Site, Tuskegee Airmen National Historic Site, and the Selma to Montgomery National Historic Trail. Now, this show will share with the listeners a different perspective on preserving African-American history in their neighborhoods. Now, with municipal development on the rise all over the nation, African-American historic sites are left vulnerable and are being demolished that need to be saved. Dr. Kennard will discuss examples of wins and losses in this battle using community activism, advocacy, and new trends with the impact of COVID-19. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Joy Kennard to the show. Welcome, Dr. Kennard. Oh, thank you, Bernice. I really appreciate that so much. Well, I am just so happy that you're coming on now, especially when you're talking about vulnerable neighborhoods and things that we need to be doing. But before we really get into this discussion, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Well, um, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I went uh, to the D.C. public schools. Um, My parents actually grew up in Washington, D.C. My mother and father both went to D.C. public schools. My father graduated from Spingarn High School. My um, mother graduated from Coolidge High School. Um, Both of them met in um, college at Livingstone College, where me and my sisters all went. Um, And so um, went to Livingstone College. I actually graduated from Dunbar High School in Washington, D.C., 
and pretty much uh, third-generation D.C. resident. My grandmothers um, moved to Washington during the Great Migration. Of course, my my grandmother on my mother's side, she um, grew up in uh, Opelika, Alabama, and D.C. because her parents were from there, and her parents actually married and met at Tuskegee University, um, which is where my office is. Um, I actually work on the campus of Tuskegee University. My office is here, um, and I can get into a little bit more of that later. But um, my father's um, mother is from um, McCormick in Greenwood, South Carolina. My father's uh, father was from uh, Greenwood as well, and they met in D.C., and raised him and his two brothers in Washington. And so um, I am from uh, a small community called Anacostia where I grew up and still own um, my grandmother's house that she bought in the 1960s. Um, And uh, it will be one of the communities I talk about that is vulnerable. But I do have two other sisters, Sarah and Hope, um, Kennard, Sarah Kennard, Hope Kennard Wilson, um, and my mother is still alive doing historic preservation as well, but both of my sisters are teachers, and I actually am a historian, historic preservationist, and work with the National Park Service, and I manage um, the three national parks, as you mentioned, but I've been in the Park Service since 1994. This is actually my 18th National Park. I uh, started out in at the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site, which is in Anacostia. Grew up playing on the lawn of um, of, of the home there, and um, uh, it just evolved into um, positions in other places that led me here. And so, well, I how came did you from- get into this field of history and historic preservation? Okay, so I actually, uh, when I was a freshman in college at Livingstone College, um, my uncle, uh, this is a good reason why youth should have mentors, whether they're in your family, in your neighborhood, or, you know, they just grow up knowing you. My uncle got me in the federal government. He said, I already got your, your job lined up for the summer. And, um, you know, you just do what people tell you to do, you know. (laughs) And um, I was raised in that old school um, philosophy of where, you know, your family knows what's best. And so um, at this time, my father had passed away. And so my uncle, his brother, William Kennard, Dr. William Kennard, was a forensic chemist at the um, uh, ATF. And so he knew the value of a federal job. And so he actually was one of the first black park rangers in the National Park Service. When he was a college student at Livingstone, where he went, he was recruited by the National Park Service to go to uh, the Grand Teton and work. They had actually recruited over 50 park rangers from HBCUs. And one of the more well-known of those is Bob Stanton, who was my uncle's roommate at the Grand Teton. He was the first black director in the National Park Service, and he was appointed by Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton in um, his administration as the first black director of the National Park Service. And so he and my uncle 
integrated the uh, career services of the Park Ranger ranks in 1962, and um, because Mr. Stanton was still in the National Park Service, he actually helped me get a summer internship where I worked at the Frederick Douglass home. And so I just walked from home three blocks up the street to the Douglass home, you know, where I still lived in Anacostia. And I just fell in love with the history, the historic house, the community, what it meant. It opened up a new reality to me. And so from there I've worked at so many other different places. Um, which has brought me here to um, Tuskegee, Alabama. And so I started off as a GS-2, and now I'm a GS-14. And so um, I'm pretty proud of the the work and the growth um, that, that I've had the opportunity to um, have in the federal system. Well, tell us about some of the... Um some of the areas where you've worked, you you mentioned okay. some of them, and it's very interesting when you mention uh, the Frederick Douglass House because I know exactly where you're talking about. You know, you, yeah. you didn't live very far from it, but Not what a historic site to to live near and to yes, exactly. Uh, yes, yes. So tell us yes. about some of the historic uh, preservation sites you've worked. Okay, sure. So I worked at the Frederick Douglass home. Uh, From there, I went to um, the George Washington Memorial Parkway, which is a thoroughfare that goes from Mount Vernon to 495, and up and down the road, it has historic sites. And so I worked at several presidential memorials, the uh, Theodore Roosevelt Island, Lyndon Baines Johnson Memorial Grove, and his wife's grove, Lady Bird Johnson, and the George Washington Memorial Parkway itself. Um, I did a lot of environmental education there as well along these different sites and the marinas and, and trails. There I worked at the Robert E. Lee Home in Arlington Cemetery. Um, I was asked to go there to actually expound upon the African-American history there of these enslaved people that served the Lee family before emancipation and after emancipation, what happened and how they saved um, uh, the home of uh, General Robert E. Lee from a burn, um, that General Sherman was pretty much going to burn the home down. But they ended up making the property um, – unfit for the Lee family to come back, which is the cemetery. And who wants to live in a cemetery? And so that's what um, they decided to do, create a cemetery around Robert E. Lee's home. And they actually started burying people in Mrs. Lee's Rose Garden. So there's a unique story there. Um, And some of the enslaved people who served the Lees were some of the first grave diggers um, at Arlington Cemetery, and so I worked there. From there, I went to the um, uh, Wolf Trap National Park for the Performing Arts. Uh, then I worked at the Mary McLeod Bassoon Council House on Logan Circle. Um, when I was there, a new park was established, the home of Dr. Carter G. Woodson, so I helped to bring that online as a new unit of the National Park Service. 
From there, I worked at the Martin Luther King home in Atlanta. After that, I worked at the Oxen Hill Farm in PG County. From there, I went to um, Fort Washington Park, where there are actually five units of the National Park Service that are managed in Fort Washington, Maryland. And those are Harmony Hall, uh, Fort Foot, uh, uh, gosh, Piscataway Park, and uh, one more that I just can't think of right now. And then from there, um, I went back to the Murray McLeod Bassoon Home where I managed the Mary McLeod Bethune Home, the Carnegie Woodson Home, uh, I managed the Capitol Hill Parks, and three concession sites that are run by um, contractors. And so those were in um, Anacostia Park Extended. It was Langston Golf Course, James Creek Marina, and Buzzer Point Marina, um, where I, you know, made sure they had in environmental paperwork, made sure that they worked with us with, you know, when we had to shut things down because of issues with um, different things happening. I worked and made sure that their um, operations were up to code and certain inspections were done, especially those who serve food. And then from there, I moved to the Colonel Charles Young home in Wilberforce, Ohio, where I actually established a new unit under the Obama administration. Um, it was 60 acres of land and a house that Colonel Young, the first black colonel in the U.S. Army, and the third African-American to graduate from West Point lived. Um, this home was fabulous. I did a lot there to um, create everything that is there today. And so um, I'm really excited about uh, the legacy I left there. And now I'm in Alabama, Bernice, <laughs> at three national parks. Can you believe I've done all that? No, I can't. I'm listening to you, and, I mean, I'm hearing you call off names. And, and one of the things that I'm really curious about, I mean, all over the nation, you know, they're African-American sites. And yes. we're talking about vulnerable sites, but how do you determine where you're going to go and why are so many sites left vulnerable to development? Just help us understand some of the reasons about that, because you're naming a lot of sites. Right. But apparently well, there are more to be preserved. They are. There are a lot more. Um, as you know, um, uh, Megar and Merle Evers, their home just became a part of the national park system, the area where um, where Emmett Till was killed just became a part of the national park system. Uh, Anniston, Alabama, where the Freedom, Bur Freedom Riders uh, bus was, was burned just became a part of the national park system. Um, so many places that are so important to American history are really just being recognized. Um, mm -hmm. It's not that they aren't important. It's not that they aren't significant. Um, it takes a community to agitate and advocate to their congressmen, their senators, their 
um, community leaders, different um, organizations that do this work well um, and can afford attorneys and um, people to um, give voice to these vulnerable sites, they they do the work. And this is a, a long time going. Colonel Young's home became a national park in 2013 because of Omega Psi Phi fraternity and their mm-hmm. advocacy in helping that home become a part of the national park system. They work so hard. They have so many different attempts to getting that site to become a national park, but it just, for some reason, during the Obama administration, he snatched it up. So there are different um Reasons why sites become national parks. Now, the vulnerable sites, because there are a lot of sites that aren't national parks that are not vulnerable. You know, when you think of, um, you know, different places like um, museums that honor uh, so many different people. Um, mm-hmm. But you, you want to, um, but when I think of vulnerable sites, you know, I am reminded of the Tulsa community and the story yeah. there. Um, yeah. I'm reminded yeah. of the communities in the Gulf states like New Orleans with all of the uh, climate, the, the, the climate events and catastrophes like tornadoes, storms. We just had one last night here in Alabama, the different fires that occur during inclement weather impacts these communities, not just these homes and and things, but just so much so many so many people, you know, people are killed, you know, who who have these stories and and if it's up to us to get these stories out of people. Um there's something called oral history which I'm sure you're familiar with, um, Bernice. Yes. And a mm-hmm. lot of people have opportunities to talk to their oldest living relatives, but they don't get them recorded. You know, they may be in the car with them or having dinner with them, but they do not take the time to sit down and press record just on their cell phone and ask them questions about growing up, what their life was like, you know, how they got through, how they made a way, how they did things, what how they survived in certain instances. Those are uh, that that's one area of, of historic preservation, telling these stories. You know, there are a lot of um, people who have issues within their family, and it leaves homes and collections vulnerable. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there are all kinds of issues we have in our family. People don't like one another. You know, the person who's paying all of Mama's bills, you know, decides to sell the house, and then everyone else gets mad, you know, and and then you have issues like famous people. For example, I don't know if you heard about Cab Calloway's former home that got demolished in Baltimore. Yes. Um, in September, it was actually demolished, and the family did try to save it. Now, this was a home I think he was a teenager in. But regardless, it tells um, the story of such an important major figure in American history. Um, And the connection to jazz is international. 
And so to have a family who wants to save a house, but, you know, because of time and space, you know, things just don't happen the way they happen all the time. You know, there's so many churches that get sold in these inner cities right now. Um, and they have family collections, they have burial information, they have veterans paperwork in those churches, you know, who people didn't have children or their children just gave them to the church. And those things are getting put out, trashed, you know, they're vulnerable. Um, you know, you have uh, cemeteries. Some cemeteries people don't realize relocate because they sell the property to developers and you have bodies that get exhumed and moved into another place. And when I was um, a part of the um, centennial celebration for Delta Sigma Theta sorority, we wanted to find all of the 22 founders and there was one we could not find. And lo and behold, my mother, who's also a Delta, she was able to do more research and actually found her, and her name is Olive Jones, and she was at Mount Olive Cemetery in Washington, D.C., and was moved to Harmony Cemetery, which is in PG County, Maryland, because the cemetery Mount Olive uh, doesn't exist anymore. And so a lot of the people moved, but they let the family know that Olive Jones never got married, had children, so no one knew that this happened. And so this mm-hmm. happens a lot in looking at the vulnerable issues with our community's history. So many things happen, even our historically black colleges and universities, our collections. You know, so many things just don't get saved like they should or – You know, we don't have people with the right training to do certain things we need to get done, you know, in some of our universities. And so there's so many areas, Bernice. I mean, we can really have different conversations. I mean, I'm just listening to you because there are so many areas. I mean, you're talking about the churches. You're talking about Mm -hmm. the historically black universities and colleges. Mm -hmm. You're talking about communities where Mm -hmm. uh, things happen. Look at Tulsa. I mean, At what point can people really begin to do something? How? how, Tell us some strategies. What can you do? Because part of this also includes the historical research, right? And who do you talk to? How do you galvanize people to look at? What they have in front of them, they they they're sitting on a gold mine and they don't even realize it. Or as you mentioned, they have the elderly people there who could tell them what happened in the community, but they're not taking the time to even record the oral history. So t- take exactly. us through the steps. What can we do to change this from reoccurring when you talk about vulnerable uh, sites? Especially well, Bernie, those that are vulnerable to the developers. Oh, yes. Well, Bernice, first, you have to make people care. So many people care about 
different things, but they have to be made to care about their history and the past. One thing that I see value in um, is making it part of your family reunions, making it an internal conversation, making it fun, making it engaging. Um, Many people go to family reunions, to vacation, but they really need to make it strategic and part of the something hands-on with learning about their history. Um, They need to contact their family. You know, the holidays are coming up, and and I think with us, um, you know, having to dine virtually now, you know, through the computer, um, celebrating uh, our different holidays with our family, there needs to be more conversations had about history, what happened, and where people's papers are, collections, photos are. You know, those mm-hmm. things need to take place. People need to talk. You know, now there are some people doing the work. I don't want you or I don't want to give the um, the listeners an impression that people aren't doing the work because there are a ton of people during the work in African-American history and historic preservation. You have organizations like the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, ASALA, which is um, what we call it for short. Um, This organization is over 100 years old, and Carter G. Woodson started this organization uh, in um, 1915. Um, And his home in Washington, D.C., that I used to manage, um, we called the birthplace of black history um, because he um, started Negro History Week in 1926 in that house, which we know of as Black History Month today. And so, um, you know, you just have um, so many different people in that organization that can be bought in to help some of these conversations occur uh, with families. And then you have the National uh, Trust for Historic Preservation, which is an advocacy group. They do do a lot of work with African-American sites. I know they've had grants to give to vulnerable sites who need funding to um, do different things with African-American sites that, um, you know, are lesser known uh, to the larger population. And then you have the Association of African-American Museums, uh, which has existed for um, over 40 years. Um, I'm uh, actually a member of this organization, actually all three of these that I mentioned. And the unique thing about the Association of African-American Museums is that this is an organization of not just world-renowned curators of museums, world-renowned um, museum directors in uh, the 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 um, uh, in America, but these are also people who are retired who are finding an interest in history that may start a museum on their own, and they want to mm-hmm. be a professional, a museum professional. They want to be validated as a museum professional, and so that is where they go and are nurtured and mentored by the world-renowned, nationally-renowned people who are doing the work in historic preservation in every area of museum studies. And then you have um, 
the Association of African American and Genealogical um, Society. They do a ton of work with oral history. They do a ton of work helping people find their family roots. I think you're in that organization, aren't you, Bernie? Yes, I am a member of OGS. Yes, yes. And so with these national groups, people are able to tap into them and gain support, look to see when their conferences are, register for those conferences, get an understanding of what and how things could begin in their families and churches, and just try to understand that this is a a journey. You know, this isn't something that you're just going to do once. This is really a journey, and, and they need to be consistent with, you know, trying to have their history not get thrown away, their their mother's yes. papers, their mother's recipe book, you know, their um their the degrees of people. I never will forget um my 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 father, he was the director of the Anacostia Museum and one of his staff people um had gone to the corner store for 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 um uh, to grab a drink, and they saw Dr. Anna Julia Cooper's uh, Ph.D., um, which was framed in a corner store hanging on the wall. Hmm. And she asked the owner how he got it, and to make a long story short, she was able to get it from the owner. And um, I'm saying all that to say that do 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 I want my grandmother's PhD hanging on the wall of a of a convenience store or liquor store? You know, do I want that? No, no one should want that. You know, of course, thank God someone saved it and it it, it was significant enough to be hanging. But there's a story there where you know who wants strangers to have possession of something that that is so important to you and your family. Now, there are a lot of people who do donate their family's collections to museums, to archives, but that is something that should be made as a collective family, and they should also mm-hmm. have agreements with those museums and archives that they will be kept a certain way for posterity. And so, um, you know, that is the way you eventually do want to go. But some some of these museums don't want to take certain things, and some of them have enough stuff that they aren't willing to take anything more. And so that's why we've, we've got to do the work ourselves, you know, and we've got to understand how to keep things correctly. You know, how to keep things away from water, how to keep things away from air, how to keep things away from, um, you know, uh, uh, insects. You know, that's what we learn in historic preservation, at least with objects. Buildings are totally different. And I can get into that, too, in another conversation as well. Yes. Well, what I want to know, though, because you're talking about things, I mean, there's certain behaviors and a certain mindset that people need to to have. 
And so what makes an effective historic preservation advocate? Suppose that's something I wanted to become. What makes what, uh, what, what make me, you know, what that, makes you that type of person? What makes you an effective historic preservation advocate would be someone who in if you that you will call up all your friends, all your friends. Hey, you know, I just have a question. How are you keeping this document and that document, or say, for example, you have a friend that's a veteran. Say, for instance, you have a friend that's a veteran, and he doesn't know where his forms are to get something done. You know, he needs to call his congressman. You know, I had to help someone with that one one time. One of my uh, World War II Buffalo soldiers, his son contacted me and was like, Joy, my dad needs this, and I cannot find this document. He had all his documents, but I can't find. What do I do? And so you you want to make sure that they are keeping their things correctly. You know, their, their, their medals. These veterans need to be keeping their medals in a, in a unique place that, is, that, that will not get touched. They need to be taking care of the, their uniforms. You know, they need to be away from, from, you know, insects eating them. They need to be properly um, housed away from light that gives it, that damages it. You know, there are certain things that need to be done for just, just veterans, you know. Um, and so, Bernice, I would just say that you, you just kind of need to call your friends. Look internally. Look at what you have. You know, mm-hmm. are you keeping your your mother's um, pictures of her as a girl? Are you keeping her stuff in, you know, a basket? You know? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Of course you shouldn't huh? be doing that. Yeah, you mm-hmm. shouldn't be doing that. You know, you need right. to make certain that it is filed away neatly in a folder. Uh, we would love it to be acid-free and acid-free environment, but if you can't get that, just make sure it's away from from air, light, and 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 liquid and insects. These are things that that must be done. They they must be done. People need to know where they are. You know where 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 items are. Birth certificates. You know death certificates. Um, you know, these things are so important. They need to be kept in one place, and people need to know where they are. There are so many people who do not plan, do estate planning. These should be conversations that you have to have with, with, with people in your family, and people just don't want to have those conversations for whatever reason. But, but if COVID-19 hasn't woken people up to have more conversations about estate planning and where you want your papers to go and giving away things like pictures and, 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 and things that are close and dear to you. I don't know when we're going to be pushed to have that conversation, Bernice. That's why I really wanted to be on your show today. And I appreciate you, you know, uh, inviting me um, several weeks ago, but I'm glad we were able to work out today but, you know, we, we've got to have these conversations more often. 
And with the holidays coming up, and even with Veterans Day coming up, we need to start there with our black soldiers, men and women who have served this country, and their children don't even know why they got a medal. That conversation Mm -hmm. needs to happen today. Mhm, mhm. But you know, there's also this this piece of community activism and yes. community genealogy, for that matter, because yes. we spend a lot of time looking at our family. But what about yes. that whole community? I, I think I shared with you. I grew up in a community uh, in New Orleans where one of my uh, I want to call him my neighbor, Leonard Smith decided mm-hmm. that he was going to to do a documentary on that community. Oh. And he he interviewed people that were in the community long before Hurricane Katrina destroyed it. But mm-hmm. so many people probably have not even thought about, wait a minute, this is an old community. If if you don't preserve the memory of that community and talk to those people, that community is lost. What about just community activism? And you you mentioned, you know, maybe there's funding or something to help people, but somebody has to take the lead. You mentioned Omega Sci-Fi, but somebody has to take the lead to say, this community is important enough for me to tell the story for me to preserve right. a house in that community because all the other houses are gone. How does right. this take place? Well, like I said, you know, we need to have more conversations about what is important to us. You know, mm-hmm. we need to stop conflicts in family. You know, there needs to be these families that um, you know, if one person is doing everything but everyone else has something to say, you know, we need to work more as a team. You know, mm-hmm. that should not have happened to Cab Calloway's house. If the family right. wanted his home to be saved, which would have allowed all of the homes on that block to be saved, I mean, there should have been more people coming prior to the decision to demolish than after the decision to demolish. You know, Mm -hmm. these Mm -hmm. are the conversations that need to be occurring in these communities all the time. You know, there need to be people in community who, who, um, you know, some of these young people you grow up with become well-known attorneys. You know, those attorneys need to be doing pro bono work for um, to intercede and to be a voice and to let the community know what this means. You know, are you sure you want this? You know, uh, how can we make this happen? You know, those conversations need to be be had. You've got to invest in these young people so they can reinvest in you. You know, and, Mm -hmm. and that just is not happening. You know, there's so many of our communities that are losing people of color because, you know, People are moving away. You know, my community in Anacostia, you know, it looks so different now um, when I go home to visit. Um, I believe, you know, it's just two original families that I grew up with on that block. All of those homes are sold. Um, you know, and and it, it's just 
amazing how gentrification can really just change the scene of so yes. many communities across the country. Um, And it's even happening in in rural communities Wilberforce, Mm -hmm. Ohio, where I came from um, A lot of African Americans are moving out of that community Of course they go to the universities there Wilberforce University in Central State But they aren't, you know, living there You know, most of the people who live there are older African Americans And as they pass on, their children sell the homes and the people who purchase the homes are not African American. And so mm-hmm. when you think about these African American communities, it's, it you see it more in D.C., Harlem, Dallas, um, Atlanta, but it's happening in these small black communities too. And, um, you know, when, when, we, when we leave these communities, so does our story. So does our our um our um history you know uh when you look at all these african american churches that are still trying to survive in harlem and places like atlanta and dc that you know really are not hugely populated by a lot of people anymore just older african americans you know that that is really the last the last vestige of proof that we ever even lived in Georgetown and mm-hmm. um, Logan mm-hmm. Circle in abundance. Yeah. And so once yes. those churches leave because we've left, then what will happen? We will never have evidence that we actually even lived in these well uh oil well maintained communities that were so prosperous and significant. During the height of of American history, during the Harlem Renaissance, up until you know the late eighties, so um, all of them are vulnerable, Bernice. All of them are vulnerable. Well, I am so glad that you were able to come on. Just to, it's almost like a call to action. Yes. Don't let don't let the knowledge of your community and what has happened in your community die because you've chosen to move away. You could be the advocate like Char, Macago, Ba, and Alexandria, who's constantly talking about Alexandria, or Mm -hmm. a young man who did a a documentary, Wilmington on Fire, because he was concerned that the story of Wilmington was going to be lost. We Mm -hmm. all have this, this opportunity to make certain that our significant history is not lost mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's part of what we need to do so we're yeah. getting ready to close out this show do you have any parting words and also i just want to mention to you i have a book that you wrote oh, about yes. your father the man the movement the museum the journey yes. of john aura Kennard as the first African-American director of a Smithsonian Institution Museum. And this is just a a fascinating story for you you. to write and honor your father and to share his legacy with everyone. So I just want to commend you on writing this book. But do you you have any parting words before we close out today? 
Well, I just want to say this, Bernice, that um, I walk it like I talk it. I am a person who helps to preserve African-American history in my family. Um, I'm the person who has the collections and papers. I'm the person who has the property in the family um, that is, you know, was grandma's. You know, I own it in in Washington. Um, And so I'm telling you what I know. Um, I'm telling you how responsible I've had to be. And it is tough and hard to be the only one to really be responsible for so much. And so um, I understand the work that that goes into it, and uh, the book is an example of that. But um, it's tough work, but somebody has to do it. And if it's not you, who? And that's That's what I like to end with. Well, I want to thank you because, right, if it's not you, who? We have... So many people, genealogists, historians, you're out there, but what is your responsibility? If not you, who? That's the the question to ask. And even though you you said you are the one, for most people, they are the one. They are the, the one that's preserving the information or writing the story, gathering as much as they can. Because it's part of what your ancestors have left. And those ancestors have left footprints. And those are the footprints that you want to continue to make certain never Mm -hmm. die out. And so I just want to thank everyone for tuning in today. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. And especially I want to thank Dr. Joy Kinnor for sharing with us Preserving Vulnerable Sites of Power, Prestige, and Significance. Everyone, I look forward to all of you joining me next week. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Joy. Thank you. Bye-bye.